0: Hello, Internet. My name is Walter C. FedChuck, and welcome to a very, very special edition of the Final Cut Podcast, presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Folks, I made a goof uh, with the kind of lead-in uh, to this week's episode from the last Final Cut Podcast, which if you haven't gone to listen to it, go listen to it after this one it was good. The Northman was a pretty decent movie. I think we would both suggest it. Chase suggested a movie and I was all up ready to go ahead and go watch it and was super excited and teased it way harder than Chase did in a way more obvious way. I hope. And, um, that movie isn't available for us to watch until the 23rd of December. Um, So we will watch Glass Onion as our first episode uh, to begin 2023 in two weeks. I apologize for jumping the gun. Both uh, myself and my good friend and podcast co-host Chase Wassener looked at it, saw we couldn't watch it and went, oh, crap, what are we going to do?
1: And Chase, instead, we're doing the crazy Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, I mean, look, I can make a joke about how we must bear the unbearable weight of our massive mistake. But honestly, the massive is on Netflix for deciding that they don't want money from having Glass Onion in theaters. It is wild to me that people were begging them. Literally, theaters were asking, please let us continue to show this film. It will make all of the money. Everyone wants to go see it. And Netflix's response was, nah. So really, this is on them. I don't blame us. I blame Netflix for making one of the most baffling business decisions that I've seen in a while, which given the state of the film industry right now is saying quite a bit. But look, we have been wanting to watch the the silly Nicolas Cage film for a while, This was a perfect opportunity to do so. And while I have some mixed feelings about some aspects here, I am glad that we saw it. I think this is a very interesting film to talk about.
0: I will say, beyond just blaming Netflix, we should blame the outdated and antiquated way that the Oscars Uh, takes a look at movies because the only reason this movie was in theaters uh, for a week, Glass Onion I'm speaking of, is purely so they could get it on potential Oscar ballots. Uh, So, boo the Oscars. I will continue to not watch you because you are not entertaining. But what is potentially entertaining is the unbearable weight of massive talent. The Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage action comedy buddy romance smorgasbord of an entire genre of movies um chase i am so glad you you accepted watching this because i really 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 wanted to watch it and sort of forgot about it until we were scrambling trying to think of something i'm like wait there's a way that we have to end the year we have to end the year with something wild crazy and potentially terrible because as nick cage in it What were your initial thoughts when you sat down to watch the unbearable weight of massive talent?
1: So I'd seen a trailer for this in theaters, and my takeaway at the time was, this is the kind of film that only Nicolas Cage could do, right? When you think about the kind of actors that have the sheer charisma and surreal nature to their careers, that they could be themselves And have it still be believable as this kind of over-the-top satirical comedy action film that takes down a lot of the things that Nicolas Cage has done uh, and is very self-aware of the fact that this is a film all about Nicolas Cage as as a part of our pop culture and how we gravitate towards him. Uh, as as such an interesting figure. He's the only guy this film works for. Um, Nicolas Cage is, is to me, the only ethical actor I have ever run into. I'm sure Tom Hanks is a very nice dude, but Nicolas Cage is a guy that does a whole bunch of films because he wants to keep funding his collection of dinosaur skulls, and that, to me, makes him the best actor that has ever existed. I, I empathize with that so much. Um, I don't care that he's been at a lot of terrible things because the guy just throws his all into every project no matter how terrible it may be and this is a project that takes his ability to throw himself fully into a piece ramps it up to 11 allows it to poke fun at himself while also embracing the things that make Nick Cage Nick Cage it's it's hard not to love this concept uh now does it exceed the trailer and the promise that that concept provides you know maybe kind of a little bit but i do think that from a conceptual standpoint this is a great concept and one that i am glad to see having been put to paper because there's no one like Nicolas cage
0: I fucking love Nicolas Cage. I love a a large number of Nicolas Cage movies. I know they made jokes about Face Off, you know, Con Air, I, I The Rock, like the 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 Nicolas Cage movies. I really like them. Um I think Ghost Rider is fun even though it's an absolutely terrible film. I think the National Treasure series is interesting and weird and a good like family film, kids film um kick-ass is i think fantastic and i think came at a perfect time of sort of helping the superhero genre sort of push itself into the mainstream by giving us a really weird bad superhero movie that somehow has Nicolas cage being a superhero in it which is kind of cool i feel like all kind of mid-2000s actors needed to have an appearance in a uh in a superhero film but but Honestly, The Rock and Face Off are are two of my kind of favorite bad, good cable movies, even though The Rock is way more of a Sean Connery film than it is anything to do with Nicolas Cage. And when I also saw a trailer for this in a movie theater sitting next to my partner, I immediately looked at her and said, yep, I absolutely have to see this fucking film. She rolled her eyes at me and we were like, okay, whatever. And I'm like, okay, wait, don't worry. I'm not going to actually buy a ticket to see this film because it potentially could be terrible. But I'm going to watch this film at some point. And here we are at the beginning of December as we were recording, watching this film and then talking about it for a podcast at the end of December. And you are correct. There's probably no one that could just play themselves and do it with a knowledge of who they are. Like, Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage. I don't think there's ever been a movie where you look at who he is playing and you're like, Oh yeah, I have no idea who that person is other than like it says Nicholas Cage in the credits and he kind of has a very like recognizable face. You're like, "No, that's Nicolas play Nicholas Cage pay- playing a, you know, paroled con man or you know, a paroled um, criminal or playing a FBI agent or or you know, whatever. Like he, it's Nicholas Cage doing that thing. It's how he would probably do that in real life. If he was that thing and and the discussion that he has early on about like, oh, I could be a spy. It's basically like acting. I'm like, yes, this is exactly how Nicolas Cage would act like if he was a CIA agent or an FBI agent or a spy. If he was Austin Powers or, or James Bond. And I think that it takes a special kind of person to be so in tune with yourself and know the joke and live the joke. And immerse yourself in it and be like, yeah, I am totally okay laughing with other people laughing at me because I am this batshit insane. And that sort of kind of points to the entire plot that this movie is about the actor, Nicolas Cage, being played by Nicolas Cage, set in a semi-fictional world. Where there are other actors that are playing parts. Neil Patrick Harris is in this movie as uh, Nicolas Cage's agent, uh, Richard Fink. Like, no, it's not Neil Patrick Harris. It is Neil Patrick Harris playing a character. And it works so, so well. Because you're waiting for them to like take one of these actors or actresses you totally recognize and be like, Oh yeah, they're it's, it's Neil Patrick Harris. Like, no, 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 it's not Neil Patrick Harris. It's, it's Richard Fink, my agent. Until you finally do get a payoff way, way, way at the end where you're like, ah, that's awesome. Where we finally get a payoff on all these famous people, not being themselves. Um, and it creates this, like this meta discussion of you took, you took Nicolas Cage and you put him into this alternate reality Chase, do you think it worked?
1: A little. I honestly, I go back and forth on it. I struggled when Neil Patrick Harris was not Neil Patrick Harris, because I honestly didn't see the point. Like, obviously, once you get to where the plot starts, and I don't believe that the plot of this film really gets going until we get to uh, Javi's uh, island off uh, off the coast of Spain, but... Up until that point, there's no real benefit to pretending like Neil Patrick Harris isn't Neil Patrick Harris. And I guess it's not a negative per se. You know, I, I think that having him be the agent means that he can play for a, a particular a particular role in terms of why he's the one organizing this, but it's flimsy. And There could have been a delineation between, okay, in Hollywood, people are what they are, and when they're not in Hollywood, we're in film mode. And I think that would have worked just fine, honestly. But that blurring of the lines is kind of the point, I think, at least in the early half of the film. This idea that Nicolas Cage is both very much in the world of a film, but no matter what he is, he is still Nicolas Cage, does speak to that element of his filmography and the way that he is viewed as this force of nature in what he does. And you see that reinforced later when you get to Javi, uh, Javi Gutierrez, played by Pedro Pascal, whose whole thing is that he is a super fan of Nicolas Cage. He is invested in Nicolas Cage for the same reason that we are invested. The whole reason we saw the film is the whole reason Javi wants Nicolas Cage in his film it's the same thought process there's a clear line in which we are meant to relate to him and thus we can indulge in the constant cuts to Nicolas Cage's filmography and what that uh implies in the looking back on all of these great moments and you know even like the kind of shrine that uh Javi has set up of all these uh memorabilia pieces that Uh, represent parts of Nicolas Cage's career. It works in the sense that the movie is correct. That is why we're here. They understand that the core concept of this film is that Nicolas Cage is such a force of nature that we don't need the window dressing. We don't need to pretend that Nicolas Cage is playing something else. He is charismatic on his own. And that's enough. And I think it's fair to say that when it comes to the world building as a result, uh, these blurred lines limit the film's capacity to build the level of empathy that it tries to instill in the first act. I, I don't believe... In a lot of what we are sold before we get to the island, because I know this is Nicolas Cage, and you're telling me to be invested in him because he's Nicolas Cage. So I'm kind of meant to ignore the things that are clearly intended to be flaws because the film doesn't see them as anything that should inhibit our ability to love Nicolas Cage, both in terms of the narrative and the meta narrative that flows through everything. So it's complicated, I guess. I, I I appreciate the idea. I just think that maybe I, I would change some things in order to make it hit a little bit harder.
0: You keep bringing up this first act, and I, and I want to get it out of the way. One, because it's at the beginning of the movie. But two, because I, I think there is such a jarring difference between the first... 20 minutes of the film as you stated before they get to javi gutierrez's island and his compound and the very very beginning of of the film i get where you're coming from of maybe they're trying to build some empathy but i actually think because he's wild and crazy Nicolas cage that if they're trying to build empathy i they completely failed i don't think they're trying to build empathy i think they're just trying to show he's this like wild and crazy has-been that you know can't find a job and is no longer quote-unquote good at what he has always been good at and is a gunslinger on his way out of town is tom brady at the end of his career is you know the the old uh, old pitcher past his prime that's working at his dad's hardware store things like that but because it's nicholas fucking cage they can't have him working at, like, a hardware store. They can't have him just, like, out fishing in a cabin in Montana. Like, no, he's got to have, like, a fucking mental breakdown, and they have to kind of feed into this that he has had some some addiction problems with drugs and with alcohol, and they they build into that, and he's having these sort of psychotic breaks where he's viewing himself in a, you know, a, a, an alternate uh, personality that's talking to him and telling him that he's Nick. Frickin' Cage. Yeah, good old um, Nicky Cage. Good old Nicky Cage. And I told you, Chase, as we as we prepared, I have a little story for you. So I actually convinced my partner to sit down and watch this with me. And we got about eight minutes in to the moment that Nick Cage drunk on Jack Daniels, sits down at a piano to play a song he wrote for his daughter, which it's her, her sweet sixteen. it's her sixteenth birthday that he wrote when she was a little girl and they were on a trip to the Grand Canyon. And it might be the single most cringy thing I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. My girlfriend's like, nope, I give up. I can't watch this. I paused it. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I will not make you watch this because you are clearly not enjoying yourself. I paused it and I watched it two days later by myself.
1: I empathize so hard. I took my headphones off of that scene. Like I followed from pure... Closed captioning. I couldn't do it. It was so cringe. And I understand there are people who love that cringe humor, but oh my God, that was so awkward in a way that seems discordant with the fact that Nicolas Cage is in every other context presented as being quite smooth and charismatic. It's a weird note, right? Like, I think the, I think the only other time in
0: the film that they kind of show this like crazy, manic depressive stage is when they do eventually get to the Island. They're having the conversation with, with Javi and, uh, and the cousin and the, um, his uh, assistant Gabriella. And he just like grabs a beer and just like Jumps into the water and sits on the bottom and is just like drinking a beer while he's drowning in the pool. And Javi has to like jump in and save him. Um, yeah, I I am sorry, folks. Um, you might just want to skip the first fifteen minutes of this movie because I don't think it really adds anything to the plot other than like he's not getting any more acting roles. He has a bad relationship with his family, which like no shit, you're a megastar. That's kind of your guy's thing. Uh, and he took this million dollar gig to go to some rich dude's birthday party because he's running out of money and the hotel he's staying at locks him out. That's pretty much it. He's hit rock bottom until he literally jumps into a pool, sinks to the bottom with a corona and tries to drown himself while drinking a beer.
1: I'm going to go one step further. I think it hurts the film. I think it actively takes away from the entire reason that we're here because there are so many ways to give like an existential crisis that aren't him... Just being an asshole to his daughter, like it is hard to watch. There's no humor in the fact that he is so self-absorbed that this what is meant to be a teenage 16 year old girl is incapable of relating to him because he has no interest in getting outside of himself for even a moment. It's not funny. Like, I don't understand what the point of that whole sequence was. I understand that you want to have this setup so that you could eventually, like, have a growth arc, right? This is something that happens with a lot of action movies. You want to have, you know, the dad and the kid. They're estranged for some reason. And then over the course of the film, the dad realizes the thing that he was doing wrong and gets better and becomes a better dad for it. But Nicolas Cage doesn't really have that. Like, there's a dinner scene later on in which he is told to apologize for the things that he's done because it's clearly weighing on him. Granted, it's weighing on him in the sense that he came up with a bad plot line because the CIA told him to, and Javi gives him the out of, clearly you're suffering from some family issues here, which is a really brilliant way to play that, by the way. I thought that was very clever. But he does the apology to his daughter, and it's a terrible apology. And even within the context of the film, everyone's like, yeah, that was awful. Like, you clearly do not understand what is wrong here. And there is never a moment in this film in which he truly understands what is wrong here. The most we get is at the very end of the film, he decides to hang out with his family and let his daughter pick the movie that they're going to watch together Which still, for the record, is putting his own framework on her, right? That it has to be a movie. It's not, what do you want to do? It's, what movie do you want to watch? Because that's the way that I am able to relate to you. And we're still doing things, ultimately, on my terms. It doesn't work. It's not trying to work. And I'm honestly stunned that it wasn't cut or condensed in some way in the final cut of this film it's not necessary, it doesn't help, and it's distracting because it means that the film wants me to dislike Nick Cage that's one not going to happen and two, a terrible goal to have to start the film. It really did put me in a down note where I had to like sit with the rest of it and realize that okay, there was a lot of stuff later on that was more clever than I initially gave it credit for because I'd started in such a weird headspace that i do not understand why the film opted into
0: yeah i i i want to get it out of the way because it is so it is it is it is an ugly ugly mass that has been attached to this film that could have been left on the cutting room floor and i think he could have just done some you know scene where there's his agent just telling him like nobody wants you nick no, no, nobody in Hollywood's calling. The only people that are calling me are crazy rich dudes that want you to come to their birthday parties for some reason. Yeah, you, you're you're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to this hotel. Like you, you need you need to just take this gig, and I don't know, go sell cars or something.
1: You bought one like, too many dinosaur skulls, buddy. I'm yeah. sorry.
0: Yeah, like, you could have easily done all that, and and again, I understand, it's an action movie, you gotta do the family so that you can do the thing later in the movie with the family, and yada, 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 like, okay, but, like, we also know you're making fun of action movies in a way here, and you could have just, like, said that they kidnap his daughter later, like, the bad guys kidnap his daughter, like, you could have just had him kidnap his daughter, because, like, fuck it, you're Nicolas Cage, of course they know where your daughter is, they figured out who you are, they figured out what you're doing, like, duh. Like, that's the obvious thing to do, and you can still have your rescue thing. It just doesn't necessarily mean as much later on. Chase, you mentioned CIA, which is why we have to get past Act 1 of the <laughs> film, because after Act 1 of the film, this thing is a fucking roller coaster. So we keep bringing up this character, uh, Javi Gutierrez, played by Pedro Pascal, which we will get to Pedro Pascal's performance Probably now, but maybe in a moment. Uh, who is suspected of being this like crazy arms dealer that the CIA is trying to like track? Because apparently, uh, the pre the president of Catalonia, his daughter has been kidnapped, and they're assuming it's by Javi because they want him to drop out and a more cartel, uh, not cartel, but like criminally uh, accepting president to take his place instead so they're trying to force him out and the cia originally thinks that the plane nicholas cage is on is bringing javi or bringing someone else to the island or to the compound and it turns out to be nicholas cage so then uh one of the cia agents plants a bug on nicholas cage so they can find out where he's going and then eventually like they recruit nicholas cage to be like hey uh that guy you're with is like a, uh, an arms dealer and Nick Cage is like not nah, dude like i'm an actor i can read people really well like i have i i, I forget the line but like he has thespian skills or whatever so that he can read people better than the cia and there's a joke where the cia agent is like oh my god this guy this guy like he's an actor he clearly has way more intel about this guy than us who have spent the past five years researching him pack it up boys we're all done in that sort of like sarcastic manner and they convinced. Nicolas Cage to spy on Javi Gutierrez to try and find this missing daughter. And it's leveraged by, well, how would you feel if it was your daughter? Like, if you let this poor girl die who's about your daughter's age, how are you going to be able to, like, dance with your daughter at her wedding? Or, like, spend any time with her knowing that you could have saved another 16, 17-year-old girl? Like, how are you going to live with yourself? And that, you know, sucks him in. And it fucking works. The second you get to all the CIA and the crazy superfan stuff with Javi, the movie starts to work.
1: Yeah. It's such a brilliant idea, right? Like the CIA having to turn to Nicolas Cage for assistance because he's the only guy that can get close to this target that they have. And also, shout out to this film for portraying the CIA a lot closer to what the CIA actually is than most films out there. If anyone who's listened to Behind the Bastards enough understands that the CIA really teeters on incompetent and unethical or both at all times, and this film perfectly captures that. They're a mess. They're absolutely wrong in suspecting Javi. They miss the person who is actually actually... Uh, in charge of all of this and they do end up killed for it and recruiting this actor without giving him the proper protections to ensure that he's able to engage with this safely is a hundred percent what the cia would do in this context like i understand that it's meant to be like a goof of like oh look at how incompetent things are like what a comedy of errors that we have but like genuinely on point this is how people should think about the cia in terms of their practical application when they're not selling cocaine they're actually pretty bad at their jobs historically. Um but putting all Also of,
0: interfering in foreign elections.
1: Yes, yes, they're very good at giving terrible people a lot of money to do terrible things um and weapons of course, but they're not actually good at putting plans into motion and knowing what they're talking about, which is what this film captures really well. You know, it's just it's the kind of thing where when Nicolas Cage says yeah, I'm an actor. This is kind of like acting here. We believe him because he's Nicolas Cage. And he's so charismatic that you just assume that he's able to make these things work, to sell the scene, so to speak, whenever he has to pretend to not be in on it. But also, they make a very smart choice, which is that even at the end of this film, there's never a moment in which Nicolas Cage does something that is some incredible feat of strength or prowess that is impossible for us to wrap our head around, right? He, uh, is having to try to infiltrate this room and he gets to the room properly, but then accidentally drugs himself because he's not used to this and has to like finagle his way through this like window ledge that he does Terribly, because he's now drugged himself and he can't feel his legs anymore. Brilliant. That's a wonderful way to handle that scene. And it gets around the idea of like him needing to be this like brilliant saboteur type. No, he's a guy who has bungled his way into this and is able to force himself back awake from sheer bodily instinct when he hears the phrase action. Brilliant cutscene, brilliant button on that scene. Love it. 10 out of 10. Great stuff there. And the, like, LSD, like, they're climbing up the wall, and it's not that tall of a wall, and Nicolas <laughs> Cage can't lift Pedro Pascal, who's not a large <laughs> dude. Like, don't get me wrong, I also could not do that, but that's because I'm overweight and outer shape. But, you know, but Nicolas Cage can't either. He's not built to do it, and so they have the dramatic moment of him dropping Pedro Pascal, only to realize that the wall is actually quite short and ends and he could just walk, can walk around. around it. <laughs> it's brilliant. Like, that's how you do this. You set up these action set PC moments and allow us to buy into them without making him more than he needs to be. We don't need to pretend that Nicolas Cage is secretly the super spy just waiting to be activated in the right moment. He's a dude who is doing his best in this situation and benefits from some very stupid bad guys. But that's what this genre is meant to do. I I think that that's a really smart way to to handle it. And obviously it's easier to do when you do a a comedy like this, which is why I think the tone of those scenes works very well. Um, You needed to do that to make it work, and they pulled it off. I think, it, I'm sorry I'm still laughing because
0: that wall scene is like so perfect and, and there are a number of these like action-y type scenes that happen that you're just like perfect like this is brilliant there's a car chase scene later on where Nick Cage and Javi are in this jeep and there's two guys on motorcycles chasing them and they get rid of one and then the other one is behind them and Javi is like oh just just throw the brake. And Nick Cage is like, what What the fuck? Like, that's not going to work. That's never going to work. And Javi's like, yeah, 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 just do it. Throw the brake. Throw the brake. So they throw the brake. And of course, the dude goes head over handlebars into the back of this, you know, Jeep. And Cage is like, oh shit, I, didn't, I couldn't believe that worked. And then the bad guy sucker punches Javi in the face. <laughs> and Nick Cage hits him with the motorcycle helmet to, like, knock him off the back of the truck. Like, of course, that fucking happens. It's fucking brilliant. There, there are so many of these great moments. Um, you brought up there. There's the the shrine earlier that that Javi has, and originally the CIA thinks this is where you know this girl is being kept. It's this like glass, uh, mirrored uh, door that probably makes no sense where it is. And Nick Cage, after the LSD scene, after they get back, he tr- he tries to get into it for a second time, and Javi like walks up, and there's that moment of like. Nick, what are you doing? Like that psychopathic bad guy where you're like, oh no, this is where the action hero gets, you know, this is where James Bond gets caught. And there is, there's a moment that Nick is like, I have to know what's in there. And Javi's like, even if it will completely change our relationship. And Nick Cage is like, yes. And he opens the door and it's a fucking shrine to Nick Cage. He's got the, the, um, the chemical pods from the rock that were in the missile He's got all these scripts, all of this paraphernalia and, and memorabilia. And then ultimately has a, what Nick Cage describes as grotesque wax figure of him holding the two golden guns from face off. And, and, and Nicholas Cage goes, it's grotesque. And then offers hobby 20 grand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much did you pay for it? Of oh, 6,000. Oh God, that's grotesque. Here's 20 K please. Uh-
0: <laughs> it's not for sale. It's not
1: for sale. And it's, and it's it's built
0: up. It's built up. up. This is where he's going to find out he's bad. This is where he's going to find out he's bad. And instead, no, there's no girl in there. There's just a terrible wax figure holding two golden guns that you paid six grand for.
1: <laughs> and, and the film does that in multiple places, right? This idea of like, well, we know that there's this high pressure situation because the CIA has framed it this way. So when they're tripping on acid in town and they see these two people who are staring at them, Because, you know, there are two people tripping acid in public, and some people are going to pay attention to it, especially when Javi does, like, the really creepy fake laugh as he turns around to stare at them. But, like, we as an audience know that, oh, well, if Javi is... Like, he is being spied on, right? The CIA is actively spying on him. So, like, there's that question of, like, are they tripping uh, and just being paranoid because they're on LSD? Or is the CIA somehow involved? And that play is really fun. It's a really great way of of messing with audience expectations, because both Javi and Nicolas Cage believe that they are being spied on for completely different reasons. And that kind of disconnect throughout the the kind of second third of the film is very funny. It's, It's a very good crux of the narrative there.
0: I think now is the perfect time to talk about Pedro Pascal, because as much as we say, I don't think there's any other actor that could have done what Nick Cage is doing in this film. I don't know if there is any other actor that could have played Javi Gutierrez. I don't think that there's anybody else on the planet right now that has kind of the goodwill, the the star factor to match up against Nicolas Cage. Not playing, you know, themselves playing an, an uh, actual character, and could chew as much scenery as Nicolas Cage's. This is a movie about Nicolas Cage, but it's got two co male leads in Cage and Pedro Pascal. The comedic timing is there. The sort of really endearing, like you actually believe Pascal is like a super fan, and it's it's kind of crazy to me because what. He's kind of playing a similar character to what he was doing in Wonder Woman 1984 of this sort of like really there's this really endearing, trustful, like nature to him of like, of course you want to trust him. Like, of course you want to believe Nicolas Cage's, you know, thespian instinct that this is not a bad man, that he is not possibly capable of kidnapping a 16 year old girl or running a gun smuggling business. And hey, spoiler alert, he actually isn't. He's not the bad guy. And Nick Cage turns out being right about him. But just everywhere across the movie that Nick Cage throws him a curveball or is is in a moment where he needs that partner to tangle with, Pedro Pascal is there with a, a rose in his teeth ready to tango with Nick Cage, and and it made the movie so much more enjoyable that there was someone there that matched him beat for beat. What, What did you think about Pascal's performance?
1: I honestly think he may have won the film. And I know that that is a bold thing to say, when this whole film is centered around Nicolas Cage being the charismatic person that he is. But I loved every moment that Pedro Pascal was on screen. Uh, He manages to play his role with this sense of earnestness that makes him so incredibly endearing. He stands as the audience surrogate in a lot of ways, right? The whole reason we are here watching this film is because we love Nicolas Cage, because we enjoy watching him do his thing, because we want to see him in films. And that's exactly what Javi wants. He has the exact same goals that we do. He wants to be able to uh, enjoy Nicolas Cage's work, theoretically work with him, um, to appreciate the talent that Nicolas Cage has and inspire him to turn his life around when Nicolas Cage is very clearly struggling um, at certain points in the film. It is a brilliant choice to play him the way that this film does. Because it would have been very easy to have this be the stereotypical, oh no, the friend who he felt close to betrayed him at the last moment. And what a shame that would have been. And it would have. Pedro Pascal is not someone we want to see be the bad guy here. We want him to be the movie nerd who bonds with Nicolas Cage, that they share the same favorite films together. And he's able to introduce Nick Cage to Paddington too. Like that's... A great moment. The whole thing is really well executed. And I agree with you. I don't know many people who could have played that role without it feeling like it was pandering or feeling like it was too much of uh, putting the audience in the film and, and too meta, perhaps. There's a, it's just a way that he's able to walk that tightrope of being a character that... Uh, Despite being a billionaire and despite having these ties to this kind of uh, Spanish-slash-Italian mafia, because that's what we have to—because the mafia has to be Italian, because, of course, um, it's really well executed. I don't know. I I just—I would love to see—I just want to watch Pedro Pascal and more things, let's be honest. I just really like him as an actor. He's really fun to watch.
0: He he has definitely hit the, like, if I see he's in something, I'm at least going to give it a shot as long as it's not a horror movie because, like, the last of a series on HBO, I nothing really, like, pulled me into that, made me want to watch it, but the fact now that, he, like, that he's the lead and they've started to show a trailer about it, like, I don't really care for the games. I'm not a PlayStation guy. I didn't play them, like, whatever. Now I kind of want to just watch that purely to see what he can do in a little bit more of a serious kind of gruff role um you know that's not like star wars mandalorian type thing like i get it i i want to see more i completely agree with you i don't think there are two actors on the planet that can convince me that Paddington Two might be a master uh, of cinema Hold and on this now. sort of
1: it is a masterpiece of cinema let's be clear here and i will make Listen you chase. watch it on the podcast if you disagree
0: Listen, Chase, I know it's going to be watched on the podcast now. I I just know at some point we're going to be like, all right, let's fucking watch Paddington 2. And I hope to God that I cry through the entire thing like Javi Gutierrez convinces us. His top three movies of all time, Face Off, which Nicolas Cage says, why thank you very much cabinet of dr caligari which is Nicolas cage's like favorite movie and one of the things that his daughter uses against him of being like you're not interested in anything i want you you made me watch this movie that i literally could fucking care less about that's like creepy and german and old and blah and then paddington Two, and and nick cage goes like come on there's no there's no dots to connect between those two things hobby goes i fucking cried through the whole thing it made me want to be a better man they watch it and Nicolas Cage goes, "Paddington Two is incredible." And Javi goes, "I fucking told you." Like, I love that relationship. I love that romance because I'm going to use the Jud Law quote from talking about him and Robert Downey Jr. with uh, working on Sherlock Holmes. What what is this term bromance? Like, no, it's romance. I'm in love with this man, and and. There is such a beautiful, loving friendship that grows between Nicolas Cage and Javi Gutierrez, played by Pedro Pascal, that it does feel like a romance in some way. Which that brings us towards the ending of this film. Which it turns out, Javi, he's not the drug dealer. It's his uh it's his cousin, uh. It is his cousin Lucas, who then, because Javi has brought uh, Nicolas Cage's wife and daughter here to the island for this apology because he put this weird kidnapping plot into this film that was a very sort of serious film about you know the relationship between these two men they basically are writing a movie about themselves and he's like now nah, you got to fix your problems with your family so we can actually focus on this great script uh, Lucas kidnaps Nicholas Cage's daughter uh, Nicolas Cage and his uh, ex-wife now have to go on a uh, you know, in disguise as this, you know, um, uh, Italian mafioso couple that has been very reclusive to get, you know, break into the place. They are able to um, take Lucas at gunpoint, free the two girls, his ex-wife and the two girls make it out um, out the door where Javi is waiting for him. And Nick Cage the entire time is like holding the gun to Lucas's head. Lucas finally gets him away, knocks him to the ground. And Nicolas Cage in what I believe might be the worst Boston accent of all time, and I'm sorry, (laughs) Daniel Craig, he fucking stole it from you. It's the worst Boston (laughs) accent of all time, does the final soliloquy of a film that he tried out for at the very, very beginning. This terrible reading talking about, like, you could kill me, but, like, the muscles in my hand are going to have enough time to kill you back. And if this is all, you know, this is all I'm able to do with the rest of my life, then, you know, what a great life to live. And then Javi rescues him. And then there's a chase scene. And then Javi sets himself up to die to, like, fend Lucas off for Nicolas Cage to escape with his family and with the um, the daughter of the president, uh, to, uh, Catalina, to the U.S. Embassy. And then, like, of course, Nicolas Cage, the age, ends up getting taken at gunpoint there And then rather than show how everything ended up ending, then it shifts to the end of a movie with Demi Moore playing his ex-wife with two much older women playing his daughter and the other girl that was kidnapped. And it goes to end credits and applause as a movie that Nick Cage and Javi Gutierrez have co-wrote, co-produced, co-directed, plays on the silver screen for its opening night. And then there is you know, a moment, everybody's congratulating them. There's the the line that has become stated multiple times by Nicholas Cage and by his agent, Richard Fink. Um, We're back, baby, but it's not like I went anywhere. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm butchering that, but that's kind of the gist of it. And then Javi goes off to uh, be interviewed by Vanity Fair and celebrate with the opening night party and uh, the after party. And Nick Cage goes home with his daughter and ex-wife to sit on the floor and enjoy each other's company. And then watch a movie because, as you said earlier, Nicolas Cage still has to make it about himself in some way. And his daughter chooses Paddington 2. And Nick Cage goes, I love Paddington too. And then they watch the movie and, and, and that's how the movie ends. It truly is a beautiful ending, Chase. But if you... F- watch all of it if you watch part one uh, you know act one and you go through the entire thing it seems that there is some sort of message that the film is trying to get you to take away at the end that you know sometimes you need to not focus on your career and you need to spend more time with your family or maybe it's you have to trust your own instinct when it comes to meeting people or um Chase, what was the message
1: of this movie? I don't think there was one. I, I think this is the problem with the uh the way that the first act was framed is that the implication there is that he's gonna learn some larger moral lesson about how he was selfish. Because that's the whole thing, right? He was selfish, he was focused on himself, he let this uh Nicky Cage version of himself uh blind him to the uh to the ability to see the damage that he was causing to the relationships that mattered to him because he was so self-obsessed with uh getting to that next big role and the fact that it closes with him getting to celebrate a film that goes really well like him skipping an after party isn't the thing that was the problem it was not oh he's so busy with all these other people and these hollywood connections that he's not able to be present it's he drinks too much and is selfish and is so focused on, like, it's all about his work always. And that doesn't change, which is fine. It doesn't need to. All of this ending is so silly by nature. It plays off of an idea that was joked about earlier in the film where, like, this should be the film. When they're on LSD and they're like, instead of making it about whatever we were talking about, like, maybe our relationship and what's happening here should be the film. And it becomes the film. And they're watching the film the same way we just watched the film, except In their universe, it's uh, got Demi Moore as Olivia Cage. Like, that's the goof. And that's fine. It could have ended there, and it would have been like, man, what a silly adventure we had. He could have pulled a Bugs Bunny and turned back to the camera and said, that's all, folks. And it would have been a perfectly reasonable ending. But as it stands, I I think it thinks that it has brought closure to what started, which is why I think they didn't cut The opening bit, it's like, well, you know, we set up this relationship with the daughter and look how much better the relationship is now. But thing A doesn't lead to thing B. The idea that his daughter was kidnapped does not mean he is now a good dad because in that moment he made sure that she wasn't kidnapped. The entire reason she was in that position is entirely his fault. It's not his own negligence got in the situation he had to rescue her out of and even she points out at the end that the kind of uh, over the top way the film closes with like i love you daddy is very silly given the film that we just saw so like yeah I, it's it's a it's a, a collection of fun and very silly set pieces that were not meant to take seriously because if we were meant to take any of it seriously, we'd have to point out how terrible these bad guys are at being bad guys. The fact that Nicolas Cage can do his terrible Boston accent and recreate the monologue from the acting performance he met at the beginning trying to get that role, that all of that chase scene could work the way that it did, we're not meant to be invested in the action for being genuine action. We're meant to be invested in it because, oh yeah, didn't Nicolas Cage do a lot of films in which he pulled off these kinds of things, despite how silly it is that Nicolas Cage, of all people, would be able to pull that off, even though we all know that he's Nicolas Cage, rather than the whatever role that he was pretending to be? Like, it's a, it's a goof. It's a good goof. It's a fun set piece. But trying to make it something more than it is ironically i think makes it a little less than the ending could be um but it's a minor note right i i think that the majority of this film recognizes that the meta humor and the um crux of the film comes from this series of misunderstandings uh that are that, that allow pedro pascal and nick cage to bounce off of each other really well that's the point that's why we're there And everything before or after those moments really doesn't matter.
0: I do think it it tried. It tried so hard to have this moment at the end and be like, see, like, yeah, his family life was bad. And then he solved it by just being a better person and that he is inherently a better person by you know, going through this archetypal heroic journey or, or or whatever they want to try and sell us on. At the end of the day, I don't think anyone came into this film expecting some kind of deeper meaning, some kind of message, something to come out of it and say, like, yes, this is what I learned watching a film about Nicolas Cage playing himself. Like, I, I don't want that. I want wild, crazy nicholas cage just being himself in a role instead of like being the role itself i said earlier any character that nick cage plays is not the character it is nicholas cage playing the character it is what that version uh, that character's version of nicholas cage And I I love it. That's why I do love so many of his films, is that he is so unabashedly himself. And everything he does just reeks of Nicolas Cage. Other than the beard, which actually really reeked of, like, Chris Evans. I was a little thrown (laughs) off by the the facial hair, because I'm like, I know this is... Nick Cage but there are moments where Chris Evans face would like appear in front of my eyes I'm like this is a way different movie if there's Chris Evans in here instead of Nicholas Cage so I don't really think there's any deeper meaning to the film ultimately it is a Nicholas Cage film which should probably be its own genre by now maybe you don't have to include the Crudes in that I don't think the Crudes are really a Nicholas Cage film it's kind of different there was a Crudes reference so I decided I just had to have Hazardly throw it in here as well, um but Chase.
1: At you know the end of the day,
0: how do you grade the movie? Like was it good? Should people watch it? On a scale of one to ten, what do you think?
1: Well, I, I have two things here. The first, as far as the scale for this, I, I'll give it a seven out of ten. Um, it's fun. I enjoyed it. If if you like Nicholas Cage, I would watch it. I think you will enjoy the things. The Nicolas Cage does here. I do think you can skip the first 15 minutes. Like, just wait for that scene of him being super drunk at his um, daughter's birthday party is over and just start there and you'll have a great time. Well, the film is a very fun film after that point, and you'll honestly have a better time with it without that framing there in the first place. Um, if you're not a big Nicolas Cage fan, one, I'm amazed you got this far into the podcast, but two this is not going to change your mind. The whole thing is predicated on you being on board for Nicholas Cage things. So um, if you're not um, good luck, uh, I, I think maybe, maybe skip this and and, and lean elsewhere. Um, but I have one more thing I would like to bring to you, Walter, before I get your rating on this film. Absolutely. So the director here is Tom Uh, Gormorkin. uh Gormican? Gormican. I'm going to go with Gormican. Sorry Tom, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Uh hopefully that's close enough to correct. Um, this man has directed three things in his career. This is one of them. The second is a TV series known as uh Called Ghosted, which is like an X-Files spoof uh that stars uh Adam Scott and Craig Robinson. Um, So we're really like reuniting uh, some some office uh, cast members in order to do a silly X-Files spoof that lasted a whole six episodes before getting canceled Uh, or excuse me, 16 episodes. Um, So I can well, congrats to get a full season, guys. Um, But the other one and this is the game we're going to play here, Walter, at the end. He directed That Awkward Moment, a 2014 film. Uh, that starred Zac Efron, Miles Teller, and Michael B. Jordan. This film won an MTV Movie Award. Would you like to guess what MTV Movie Award That Awkward Moment, starring Zac Efron, Michael B. Jordan, and Miles Teller, won in
0: 2014? You said 2014? 2014.
1: 2014. Best Kiss. Close! It's best shirtless performance by Zach Efron. Congratulations for the award win award-winning director Tom Gormican gets to, to get to put that on the list. Uh, you don't have a Wikipedia page, but you have uh a not great uh comedy uh X-Files uh spoof and uh Zach Efron shirtlessness winning the day. So Good on you, man. Live your best life. I'm glad that your letter to Nicolas Cage asking him to be in the film after he rejected you a couple times won him over. Because uh, this was definitely worth the time, even if it was a little bit messy.
0: Well, listen, if we're, you know, if Nick, if Zach Efron, not Nicolas Cage, if Zach Efron won a Best Shirtless Performance from MTV in 2015, I can only imagine what he's going to get next year playing carrie von eric the wrestler in the iron claw where i'm going to assume for like 80 percent of the movie he's gonna have to be shirtless because it's wrestling so 2023 best shirtless performance put your money in on zach efron now because like i don't know what website might put up odds but like i i guess bet on that that's probably a winner uh, but if you want to talk about a winner, I would say it's the unbearable weight of massive talent. I'm I'm gonna give it um I'm gonna give it a seven and a half out of uh, out of ten. I'm gonna give it that extra half point because I re- I really do I really greatly enjoy most of the the Nicolas Cage stuff I see. I really can't think of a Nicolas Cage movie that I watched and I've been like no, nah, that's really really bad. Other than the first fifteen minutes of this movie, um the first fifteen minutes of this movie were bad. It was super cringy in a very terrible bad upsetting way that made my partner not want to watch the rest of the movie which is kind of a bummer because i i don't think it's her cup of tea but i think she probably would have enjoyed it later on in the film if we had just skipped that early birthday and and song sequence um if you don't like Nicolas cage if you don't like these kind of meta comedy movies it it's probably not the film for you, but I think if you're a you know, semi-fan of Nicolas Cage or if you want a really, really good Pedro Pascal performance, give it a shot, skip the first 15 minutes, which is a terrible thing to say, but skip the first 15 minutes and just watch the rest of the movie. It is pretty dang good. But you know what else is pretty dang good? Following Chase Bucking! Wassener on twitter i couldn't do it too loud because it is 11:30 at night when i'm recording right now but chase where can the good folks at home find you on the interwebs
1: oh you can find me at Chase Wassener on twitter you can follow the podcast at rough drafts pod uh you should definitely be subscribed to our main rough drafts podcast feed because on the weeks you don't get final cut you get uh our steam cleaners podcast in which we talk about two video games that we've been playing two different games every week, except maybe, maybe something different. Who knows? You'll only find out if you're subscribed to the show, though. Of course, if you're just happy with final cut, stay tuned to this final cut feed. Um, You will have something for you in two weeks. And you know, it's been a, a pleasure to keep this going throughout the year. Uh, we are very excited uh, for what 2023 has in store, but Thanks for sticking around in 2022, y'all. This has been a really fun year with a bunch of interesting films. And as we get closer to the Oscars next year, we're going to have some very interesting films to dive into uh, that I hope you will stick around for.
0: I absolutely can't wait for Chase to message me one day and go, Hey, Walter, this is the foreign film. That's going to possibly win an Oscar this year. So we have to absolutely watch it. And it's going to be like in Portuguese or something. And I'm going to be like, absolutely. Because none of the other foreign films you've directed me to, uh, have been bad. So I'm all for it. I can't wait for Oscar season, even though I'm not going to watch the Oscars at all. Uh, with that being said, you guys can find me at c underscore L O L. Um, Man, I might have to watch Face Off. I'm, I'm uh, I might have to watch that movie here in the next couple of days because I'm feeling an itch and I it needs to be scratched by a villainous John Travolta. Uh with that being said, I'm I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. There's no mystery here. The first episode of 2023 will be Glass Onion. I am very excited to watch that film to talk about it with Chase because we never did knives out. Um, so Come back either next week for the gaming podcast and what I believe is the last episode of the rough draft podcast series for 2022, or we'll see you in two weeks in January of 2023 with glass
1: onion until then goodbye, internet.
0: Primary recording is going. Uh, We have a special guest on the podcast. It is in fact, chase Flanders. Everybody,
1: (laughs) hi, uh, howdy ho, neighborinos! Um, (laughs) Excited to talk about this very Christian film, you know,
0: very Christian film, very, very Christian, Christian. Mm -hmm. the most Christian.
1: I blacked out right when they said the words LSD. I don't know what happened there.
0: Um, (laughs) Listen, there was no sex, there was no porn. Like I, I don't know. This, this would be right in Yee's
1: wheelhouse.
0: (laughs) Okay. Actually going to clap us in uh, with the unbearable weight of massive
1: talent in three, two, one,